0: Okay, I'd like to begin today with an ethical question. And it's too bad that our local ethics professor, Marnie, isn't here to enlighten us. But it's a simple question. Is it ever okay to lie? I'm going to look at my girls and say, no, it's not. But is it ever, ever okay to lie, to intentionally deceive, mislead, or falsify facts? While you ponder that question, and I hope you do ponder it, I'm going to move to the exact example that many of you are probably thinking of, the extreme example of when lying is acceptable. Um, so to think of citizens in Europe in the late 30s to mid-40s who were housing and protecting Jews. They would frequently be asked if there were Jews residing with them, and they would frequently deny that there were, which is a lie. They lied and in fact made a habit of living a dishonest existence. But we would all agree that this was morally superior to allowing their neighbors to succumb to certain death at the hands of the nazis right we would We would agree though that lying because you're saving somebody in your house is morally superior to turning them over to the authorities right Maybe we don't I'd certainly do i I think telling a lie to a fascist to save a life is completely acceptable um in that specific historical instance in the Holocaust lying was justified. Can we start with that as a baseline? You may have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. This is Corrie Ten Boom. If not, consider educating yourself because she is a hero, um, a Christian hero. During World War II, Cory and her family recognized the moral imperative to rescue Jewish people and hide them in their homes. She believed that that was the will of God. She was eventually caught and sent to a concentration camp at around the age of 50, which she survived and allowed her to write her most famous book, The Hiding Place. Has anybody read The Hiding Place? I read it like in junior high. Um, This book is a powerful testament to the cost of discipleship. One woman victorious against the Nazi regime, defiantly disobedient, a holy rebel with the greatest cause. But it may or may not be surprising to hear that the decision to house and protect Jews did not come easily for Corey and her family. Not that the question was whether or not Jewish individuals should be spared from the cruel fate awaiting them. The question was one surrounding the ethics of lying. Corey's sister, Nolly, insisted on a rigid adherence to telling the truth. She believed that dishonesty was dishonoring to God, and that if a Jewish person was turned over to Nazi custody because she answered the authorities honestly, that God would protect those individuals in response to Nolly's holy approach to truth telling. So there is an alternative. That is, of course, some next-level faith. To say, okay, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say I'm housing Jews, and I'm going to trust that we'll be okay. But it also indicates some next-level ethics. It's not that Nolly believed lying to the Nazis was more sinful than genocide. It's that she felt she must bring glory to God in both ways. Telling the truth, despite the slight risk to herself and the major risk to those in her protection, and living the truth by valuing human life over fascist authority. Corey decided on the alternative route. When confronted with suspicions of housing Jews, she lied openly to those who would obliterate their lives. She wrestled with that, but she she decided that that was the moral imperative. That didn't necessarily come easily, but it came dutifully in response to the command to love God and love neighbor. I've been ruminating on this ethical question all summer long, not because Angie and I are housing Jews in our house or or anything like that. Um, We're not making life or death decisions based around telling the truth in our day-to-day lives. Rather, thanks to the excellent recommendation of our sister-in-law, Megan, I've been reading a novel called American Dirt. It's a fictional story based on research into real-life accounts of those who are forced to flee rampant, uncontrolled drug violence in Mexico and Central America which is an issue that affects literally millions and millions of people. Today's ethical question constantly pops up in this novel. After her family is murdered by a cartel because her husband is a journalist, the protagonist and her son have to give up everything and flee to El Norte, the North, which for them is the United States. Along the way, they can trust no one, since the reach of the cartel is huge, very similar to Angeline's experience with trafficking women. You can't trust police, you can't trust border patrol because they are often on the take, and it's especially bad in Mexico. Her and her young son and the companions they meet along the way, they have to rely on the kindness of others to reach safety. If they ever do, in fact, reach safety, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm not going to give it away. But they are entirely innocent, and their lives are very much at stake. And if not for rule-breaking, authority-defying strangers... People like detectives, bankers, fellow migrants, compassionate moms with empty garages, all kinds of people in the story. If not for those authority-defying, rule-breaking strangers, they would never make it even out of Acapulco. These strangers on either side of the border willfully misdirect uh, oppressors, falsify documents, step outside the bounds of their employment, take enormous personal risks, even straight-up lying convincingly in order to save just two small people, among the hundreds of thousands who in real life share their dire circumstances. The novel portrays these strangers as heroic, as it should. But the questions remain, is it ethical to lie? Well, the fictional novel American Dirt and Corey ten Boom's autobiographical novel The Hiding Place both suggest that it can be, in extreme circumstances. But I bet you could name another book where the absolute ethics of truth-telling are called into question a little book called the Bible. We're going to read 1 Samuel 19 in two pieces. First, we're going to read verses 1 to 17, and then verses 18 to 24. The first section is dominated by illustrations of our ethical question this morning, questions regarding the truth. There's deception and disobedience prominently at the forefront of this first section. The second section is very different, but will act as a response to the questions of the first section. In all of it, we find a continuation from last week's passage. Saul's all-consuming, murderous jealousy of his young squire, David, continues to burn. Things continue to escalate, but as we saw last week, God is still very much in control. So let's read 1 Samuel 19 verses 1 to 17 and engage in a conversation about the truth. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you, he said. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and, you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistines, The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. But once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him, but an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the harp. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall that night. David made good on his escape; he had just made an oath not to take David's life, and three verses later, he's overcome by jealousy, murderous rage, and tries to kill him. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. I, okay, it's technically pronounced Michal. I'm not doing that every time. Can I just say Michael? Is that okay? I'm just going to say Michael. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head, which is about all that idols are good for. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, He's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told him, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the the men entered, there was the idol in in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? Basically, she's lying and saying, David threatened me with my life. So I let him go, which is a lie. I always read two commentaries in preparation for these sermons, and it was pretty funny. Both commentaries in discussions about these few chapters here both called it a soap opera. Very, this is very soap operatic. You can see why. There's murder, jealousy, deception, romance, temporary repentances, lifelong promises, and a hunky young warrior at the center of it all. And you can see the escalation from the previous chapter, which we looked at last week. In chapter 18, Saul was making moves behind the scenes to attempt to bring down David. Here, there are no pretenses. Saul is completely sold out to the idea of destroying his nemesis, and he no longer cares who knows it. He does all of this stuff right out in the open. He isn't plotting and conniving in some back room, getting others to do his dirty work. Here, he actually shows up at his daughter's place in order to kill David with his own hands. He doesn't care who knows anymore. He's completely sold out to getting rid of David. He's lost to jealousy. He's a madman, and he's proving that the Spirit of God has finally fully departed from him. He makes an oath to his son and confidant, Jonathan, then completely disregards it at the first opportunity to disregard it, uh, three verses later. And David will never again serve in the court of King Saul. He'll be back in that court. He'll be back in that throne room, but as anointed king, not as a servant of Saul. Until then, he is years and years ahead of him of fleeing. He's on the run from Saul. The soap opera is just getting started. And if that appeals to you, let me tell you, the next whatever it is, 14 chapters of this book is all soap opera. It's 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 all this kind of drama. Saul and David, and there's some amazing stories coming up. To illustrate this escalation in the conflict between Saul and David, chapter 19 follows the same flow as chapter 18. There you probably noticed. Last week's passage and this week's passage, very, very, very similar. Both chapters begin with Jonathan committing himself to David. Last week, he gave David all his armor, basically said, you're the next in line for the throne, not me. And here he does the same thing. He's committing himself to David, which then leads to Saul attempting to assassinate him with a spear after yet another of David's military successes. That happens in both these chapters which then in both chapters leads to a story of the king's daughter, Michael, declaring and demonstrating her love for David. They're mirror images of each other, but this chapter, things get ramped up a bit. Every event that is mirrored in both chapters is more severe in this chapter. Jonathan doesn't merely make a covenantal bond with David, as he did in chapter 18. In chapter 19, he enforces that bond at great personal risk by defending his best friend against his own dad. Walter Brueggemann suggests that in chapter 18, Saul flirts with the idea of pinning David to the wall with a spear in a fit of jealousy, but only half-heartedly so. Whereas here, Saul fully intends to execute David with an instrument of wrath. And whereas the last chapter spoke of Michael's love for David as a sort of contrast to Saul's own hate, which allows Saul an opportunity to ensnare David, here Michael's love for her husband leads her to deceive her father, lie to her dad and enable David's escape. We again have the king's family going to great lengths to show their tremendous love and commitment to David, in stark contrast to Saul's own bitter, selfish jealousy. David is very passive in these chapters. David doesn't do a whole lot. People do things to him and do things for him. All he does is receive the gracious and enormously risky support of A, his best friend, and B, his wife. But we know better. We know that this isn't merely Jonathan and Michael at work against their bloodthirsty father. God himself is moving. God is in control, working things out for the benefit of his anointed one and for the benefits of his good and sovereign will. But this takes us back to the ethical question that was posed at the the heart of today's message. Michael's ethical issues are obvious. She first lies by saying that her husband is sick. That sends off the first wave of attackers. And when caught in that lie, she tells a secondary lie that has, varied, has two very different consequences. The first consequence of her saying David threatened to kill her is that, A, it saves her own life uh, from, from the bitter wrath of her freshly duped father. But the second consequence is that it completely ends any hope of reconciliation between her dad and her, and her husband, since Saul now has new fear or fuel in his hatred against David. He now believes that David threatened to kill his daughter. So it has two pretty severe consequences for for David. From here on out, David is a fugitive, in part because of his wife's lie. But it was necessary. It saved David's life in a very real way. Saul's question to Michael comes across as desperate and pathetic, stomping and pouting like a petulant child. Oh, man, why'd you let my worst enemy get away? I thought I had him. But Michael is... Michael is far from condemned for her duplicity. Instead, she comes across as heroic, even acting in accordance with God's will, since her lie is what preserves God's anointed future king. So her ethical issues are very obvious to us. But believe it or not, Jonathan commits an even more egregious sin of his own. He doesn't lie. Rather, his sin is in telling the truth. Let me explain. You may remember the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the foundational ethics upon which the entire Old Testament law is built and all of Jewish society is built around these Ten Commandments. They are given in roughly an order of importance. The command against lying is commandment number nine. And it's, it really isn't a command against lying so much as a command against giving false testimony in the court of law, saying that if you're called to be a witness on the stand, you must give honest witness to, uh, to the events that you witnessed. But of course, the principle extends to everyday life. It's not just be honest on the stand, it's be honest in everything you say and do. God is truth, so God's people act in accordance with truth in all they say and do and believe. Lying is a big deal in ancient Israel, and in some cases, punishable by death. But still, it's only number nine. Let's scoot up the list a little bit, shall we? All the way to number five. Number five, which is the first commandment that speaks to a a relationship with other people rather than a relationship with God himself. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no idols. Number three, uh, keep God's name holy. Number four, the Sabbath. Those are all about our relationship with God. Starting at number five, it's about our relationship with other people. It's the only command, number five, is the only command in the top ten that has a blessing attached, illustrating how crucially important it is to God. Whereas the ninth commandment is the basis of the Israelite justice system, which is important, number 5, the 5th commandment, is the basis for the entire Israelite social structure. And what, pray tell, is the 5th commandment? Anybody want to show off? Honor your father and mother. Hebrew children were expected to obey their parents in everything they did. Failure to do so wasn't just met with corporal punishment, a spank or a timeout. It was met with capital punishment. It could be. A 15-year-old son who talked back to his father could be stoned to death for the offense. How's that for harsh? And so with that in mind, let's go back to the first words of the chapter. Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all the attendants to do what? Kill David. That was Saul's direct command to his son. So those aren't merely the words of his father. Those are the words of his anointed king. And Jonathan is disobeying and disregarding them. Michael may have broken the ninth commandment, but Jonathan stands condemned by the fifth commandment. And you may argue what Jonathan had to say was good and right and holy, and you're right, but he still disobeys his father. His father and him have a working relationship where that can happen. But the point is, and I'm not just making this up, others have noted this too, Whereas Michael breaks the ninth commandment to not lie, Jonathan breaks the fifth and is dishonoring his dad by not obeying him. Both Jonathan and Michael are not only guilty of disrespecting their earthly father, they're guilty of breaking the rules set by their heavenly father as well. Saul is well within his, his um, rights as king to order the death of anyone he wants, technically. By the rule of law, if he says kill this person, Jonathan should listen because he's his dad and his king. Jonathan and Michael, they, dis, they disobey, they're dishonest, and yet they are heroes. Both take enormous risks in standing up to their wrathful father, who by all standards of the day could execute his children for their role in protecting David. Saul has already attempted to murder his son based on one foolish proclamation he makes, his own selfish determination. Remember the honey incident in chapter, what is it, 14? Saul says, nobody can eat till all the the Philistines are dead. Jonathan doesn't hear it, dips his spear in the honey, eats it. And Saul's going to kill him, is determined to kill him, to make a point. This isn't the first time Saul's own foolish determination has been a risk to Jonathan's life. And here, chapter 19, Saul is much more internally motivated. The killing of David, he believes that much more strongly than he believed his foolish honey thing. So... It's no small risk that both Jonathan and Michael make. And though they take the risk based on their love for David, they don't do it necessarily to honor God, they do it to honor David. But the narrative makes it clear that their risks are also aligned with the sovereign will of Most High God. This is holy disobedience. This is holy dishonesty. Perhaps you think this is an overblown ethical question based on one little story tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. That's fair. And I'm going to start getting to, to to examining maybe answers here in a bit, but it's not just one isolated story. Scripture is chock full of rule breakers, liars, and deceivers who are called heroes in history. The entire nation of Israel is formed by Jacob receiving Isaac's blessing instead of Esau. And how did Jacob receive that blessing? He and his mother, Rachel, openly deceived his father, dressing Jacob up to imitate Esau, the firstborn, and and tricking Isaac, living up to his namesake, the name Jacob means deceiver, trickster. Now, unlike these other stories that I'm going to talk about, Jacob isn't... The story of Jacob, he, you don't get the impression that God approves of what Jacob has done. You don't get the sense that him and Rachel are heroic in doing this. You definitely get the sense of, Jacob, you trickster, you've done it now. You've really done it now. But the fact remains that Israel which means wrestles with God, was formed by deception. Jacob has his name changed to Israel. The nation of Israel is formed by deception. That is significant. In Exodus, as we discussed last week, the Pharaoh ordered all Hebrew boys tossed in the Nile in an effort to curb Israelite growth. We're not given the name of that Pharaoh, which is strange to us. They They don't record the name of Pharaoh for history's sake. That's a trivial piece of info. Who cares who the Pharaoh is? He's just some king. What we do get is the names of Shifra and Pua. You know who Shifra and Pua are? They are the Hebrew midwives. They're otherwise anonymous Hebrew midwives who disregard the royal order to murder babies and instead save the infant boys, deceiving Pharaoh and lying awesomely. This is their awesome lie. This is the lie that they tell to Pharaoh to save their own skins and to save the lives of these babies. They say, the Hebrew women are much more vigorous than their Egyptian counterparts. They've already pushed the baby out by the time we get there. That is such a great story. Uh, it, they are heroes. They are named for all eternity. Whereas this Pharaoh who gives this law, who cares who he is? He's just some schmuck who orders this awful thing. Shifra and Puah are worthy of timeless recognition. And they lie. It's holy deception. Then there's Jael. Jael is named a hero for deceiving an enemy of Israel, Sisera, commander of a a foreign army. Jael tells Sisera that he can lie down and sleep in her tent. And then she murders him with a tent peg to the brain. Um, She is a liar. She's a deceiver. She's a murderer. And she's a hero. But the most similar instance to to today's story is found in the book of Joshua. There, the Israelites are getting ready to to destroy the city of Jericho upon God's orders. Two Israelite spies head into the city, but are discovered in the home of the prostitute Rahab. In a reflection of Saul and Michael, the king of Jericho, just as King Saul does later in 1 Samuel, the king of Jericho demands that Rahab hand them over. But like Michael, she lies to the king and says that they had left earlier that evening, though she was hiding them under a bundle of flax on the roof this whole time. After their pursuers set off to chase them down the road, Rahab, like Michael, lets God's servant down by a rope in the wall, which is exactly how David escapes. It's it's a, a really close reflect these stories are very closely reflected. And for this act of dishonesty and deception, Rahab and her family are alone spared while the rest of the city falls at the hands of the Israelites. She's even listed in both the book of Hebrews and the book of James as a hero of the faith for her lying. Rahab, a foreigner, a woman, and a prostitute—the last person you would expect Hebrew people to to say is a hero. She's a liar. She's a deceiver, but she's a hero. Amazing. So what gives? Is God willing to toss his own rules out the window if he happens to like one certain guy more than another guy? Are his clear commands up for constant reinterpretation? Is there even such a thing as objective uppercase T truth? Or are humans just called to behave however they see fit and occasionally it will align with God's actual desires? If Jonathan and Michael, like Shifra and Pua and Jael and Rahab, all brave women, mind you, Every person on this list, aside for Jacob, and he's not so great, and Jonathan, all of them are brave women. If all of these people can openly flaunt the Ten Commandments and be labeled heroes for it, then what authority, if any, do those commands carry? Obviously, they still have a lot of authority. I'm trying to make a point here. Those are heavy questions. But before we examine them, let's read the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter may seem entirely unrelated other than it's David fleeing some more, not to mention thoroughly bizarre. But I will attempt to connect it to our central ethical question this morning. So let's read verses 18 to 24. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. So Saul sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and guess what? They also prophesied. Finally, Saul himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Sikkiu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? That is a very awesome story. Samuel's back. We haven't seen or heard anything since he anointed David back in chapter 16, but here he is in David's time of great need. It makes sense that David would run to Samuel, and it makes sense that the means by which Samuel protects David is far more mystical and spiritual and baffling than an idol with a wig on. Samuel's means of saving David is incredible. It's also fantastically subversive. Here comes Saul in all his jealous, selfish, murderous bluster, and before he even gets to Ramah, He's lying flat on the ground, groveling powerlessly at the feet of God's hero. Very much like the thought exercise Bob had us at at the throne of God, that's Saul at the feet of Samuel. It's pretty incredible. And since he's falling at the feet of God's hero, Samuel, he's actually falling at the feet of God himself, whether he wants to or not. Brueggemann states the situation beautifully. He says, Saul is seized by the Spirit of God who is allied with David and who perhaps is responsive to the rule of Samuel. Saul strips off his clothes. He lies before Samuel all day and all night. The pitifully embarrassing scene is that of a once great man, still tall but no longer great, exhausted by demanding religious exercise, clearly not in control, shamed, and now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. This episode is an act of dramatic delegitimation of Saul. In, in this way, in the most humbling, humiliating way possible, God is saying, this guy is no longer my king. I am done with this guy. It's powerful. Saul continues to run headlong into the will of God like an out-of-control car into a concrete overpass. Before such cosmic power, Saul is left a puny shell of himself, which is what hate does to all people. It leaves you a small, shriveled, groveling person. Saul's entire career is bookended by the last words of this chapter. You may have noticed that. You've heard these words before in chapter 10. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he was first anointed back in chapter 10 by Samuel, likely at Ramah, the Spirit of God overcame Saul, and he prophesied powerfully. And onlookers were shocked that someone as anonymous as Saul could have such a powerfully positive transformation. Flip that in chapter 19, and it's color-coordinated here so you can see. In chapter 19, it is the exact opposite. At the end of his anointed status, he is again in the presence of Samuel at Ramah. But here, though the Spirit of God has departed Saul, it returns to torment and subjugate the king. And onlookers are shocked that someone as powerful as Saul could have such a humiliatingly negative transformation. Do you see the reversal based just on this one statement? The statement of those onlookers transforms as well. Not It's not only Saul, the statement transforms. From a statement of a claim to a statement of mockery. Saul is completely finished. And while he is being embarrassed so publicly by the Spirit of God, guess what? His nemesis escapes out the back door. As is God's obvious will. What Saul is experiencing is an undeniable reaction to the overwhelming truth of God's presence. It is inescapable, palpable, transformative, humbling, and utterly, completely, entirely holy. Saul is experiencing a physical manifestation of absolute spiritual truth. No one can stand against God's will. No one. He will not bear such arrogance as Saul is demonstrating. And he will act powerfully if need be in order to protect those whom he has called and set aside for his service. There are principles that run deeper and more foundational than the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. Though the top ten certainly flows from those principles... But there's deeper truth than simply do not lie, do not dishonor your parents, do not steal, do not murder, keep the Sabbath, do not, do not, do not, do not, etc. There's deeper truths. In both the Old and New Testaments, there are truths that supersede all other truths. Truths that precede the law. Truths that were in place before the law was ever given. Eternal truths that are captured as far back as the creation account. Truths that were perfected on a cross and in an empty tomb. And in fact, Truth itself isn't some words on a page. Remember during my God is Goliath sermon when I wrestled with questions of God's silence and violence, and I stated that there is a more perfect image of who God is than the troublesome stories of the Old Testament? And in fact, that representation isn't, it's a person. It's a person, Jesus Christ. Well, the same is true with truth. The Bible isn't the truth. It points to truth, It describes truth. It leads to truth. It's it's a crucial instrument of truth, but it is not the truth. Worship of scripture is the same problem that the Pharisees had. They understood the laws, but not the one whom the laws pointed to. They worshipped their words. They didn't worship God. And so the Bible isn't truth. It's not the truth. It's a crucially important signpost of truth, one worthy of lifelong investment. I am not denigrating the Bible at all. It's right there in the name of our church, Clyde Christian Bible Church. But it is not the truth. Instead, the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is truth. In fact, as he says in John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. It's not through careful memorization of scripture, although that helps. You don't come to the Father through careful obedience of commands, though that helps. You don't come to the Father through strict ethical guidelines, though that helps. It is Jesus who saves. He is truth incarnate in the same way that he is love incarnate. All that is true is found in Jesus. And what is the most dominant truth that we find in Jesus, who is the truth? The most dominant truth that Jesus taught, lived, died for, and perfected was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is the eternal truth which humanity cannot escape. God is one. These are the truths that precede the law, that that supersede the Ten Commandments. These are the, the undeniable foundational truths that all humanity rests on. One, God is one. There is one God. Two, God is love. Three, God is holy. There's probably others, but I'm going to start with that. He is one, he is love, and he is holy. And we are not God, though we tend to act as though we are. All of scripture is based on those truths. This is why ethics are flexible and why those who rigidly follow the letter of the law, rather than the one that those laws point to, are in need of such harsh redirection. Jesus demonstrated this repeatedly. In Mark 3, Jesus encounters a man in the synagogue with a shriveled hand, and it looks like Jesus might start healing this guy, which is great, except, whoops, it's the Sabbath, and healing is technically an act of work. Jesus is roundly condemned by the hardline Pharisees before he even does anything. These, These Pharisees, they're Glowering at him like this, he's going to heal this guy, isn't he? On the Sabbath even, can you believe that? But Jesus demolishes their self-centered, power-hungry, loveless, legalistic hearts. He demands of them, which is lawful of the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? In another place, he even says, you would rescue your donkey on the Sabbath if your donkey was stuck in the mud and you're condemning me for wanting to heal this guy? And then, of course, he heals the guy. Right in their faces, he disobeys their meaningless laws, highlighting their tendency to snuff out life and snuff out the truth of God's love for all his children. Jesus, anytime he saw law that contradicted with truth, he was willing to completely disregard law for the purpose of truth. For example, they said, hey, how come you never wash your hands before you eat? And Jesus is like, well, I mean, washing your hands is a good idea before you eat. But Jesus says, you hypocrites, you're so worried about purifying the outside of you, but your heart is what needs purifying. You're so worried about your appearance, your outward appearance. And as Bob says, <laughs> and as Bob said in his communion, God sees so much deeper than just your outward appearance. He's more concerned with how pure your heart is than how pure your hands are. Jesus is the truth. And the truth is that God will always prioritize love and life over legalism. Always. That's why so many heroes in scripture and in our modern world are those who defiantly disobey, who lie and deceive for the benefit of others. You'll notice a trend in all this, this holy disobedience. It's not for yourself. It's to protect it's to show love to vulnerable people. It's to protect life over rule of law. That's when it's acceptable in all of these stories. Because love and life trump law and legalism every time. God wants justice and mercy and humility. That's what he commands of his people justice, mercy, and humility. God cares, er, sorry, Saul cares nothing for any of those things. Is Saul just? Is he merciful? Is he humble? Well, he gets humbled forcibly at the feet of Samuel, but he is none of those things. Saul cares nothing for justice, mercy, and humility. Jonathan and Michael, on the other hand, they risk everything for an innocent man. Their disobedience and dishonesty are extensions of love, and they preserve life. Thus, they are ethically superior. They are under the moral imperative to protect David. They are not breaking the commandments so much as perfecting the commandments by showing love to God and showing love to neighbor. They bring far more honor to God by breaking the rules than they would by obeying the rules. Now, obviously, this is a slippery slope. I'm not saying all rules are up for interpretation. Do whatever you want as long as it's in love. You can't just do whatever you want, even in love. Not everything is permissible. Lying to preserve someone's dignity, however, is totally fine, and we do it all the time. When a kindergarten asked me, Mr. Lance, do you like this horsey that I drew? It would be unloving of me to speak the truth and say, horse, are you kidding me? It's green, it has no ears or tails, and it's shaped like a small pile of puke. No, I do not like your horsey. Call me when you can hold a pencil properly, you amateur. As much as I would love to say that to the five-year-olds, it may be truth, but the deeper truth in that situation is compassion and dignity towards an innocent obviously it's the same how do i look in this outfit well how do i look in this outfit fine i would hope if i ask angie how do i look in this she would say you look good even though maybe i look slobbish and whatever i don't who cares it's just a shirt so her saying you look good is maybe a lie but it's the better choice it's the more holy thing to do it's protecting my dignity which is fragile We're not in a position in our daily lives. We're not in a position where we need to lie because we are secretly housing homeless people or indigenous people or Muslim people who the government's shipping off to Baffin Island, at least not yet. Angeline is in that situation often. But if we were in that position, we would be doing a holy thing by forsaking the laws of the nation and preserving the laws of love and life so perfectly represented by the truth of Jesus Christ. There are people who face these decisions all the time, even today. Migrants who are fleeing certain death in Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador are being rounded up at the border, separated from their children, labeled as criminals and rapists and murderers. Their children are being shipped off to American families for the profit of those who kidnap them, while the parents are deported back to the country they are seeking asylum from, where they face likely execution after being, I might add, this has come out recently, forcibly hysterectomized. That's happening. It's great evil, and it's happening. And some holy rebels are disobeying the letter of the law to preserve the greater law, which is love and life. In this instance, Saul is a completely broken man. Saul in chapter 19, he's a completely broken man. When he encounters truth, it strips him naked and subjugates him and humbles him completely which is that that sort of penetrating power of, of God's truth that Bob talked about in communion. Because Saul's will to destroy for selfish reasons has collided with God's truth, David, a man after God's heart, is to be Israel's anointed leader. That's God's truth, and Saul is running headlong into that will, and he will not win. Saul is acting unjustly, using his enormous power to destroy, just like the Pharaoh in Exodus, just like the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, just like the Mexican cartels today, just like just like the Pharisees in Mark 3, all of them are powerful people using their power to crush smaller people unjustly. Which means that the disobedience and dishonesty of righteous dissidents like Shifra, Pua, Rahab, Jonathan, Michael, or Corrie Ten Boom, it may be lying, but it is still truth. It may be lying, but it is still truth. Where there is love, that protects others at cost to ourselves. Sacrificial love, that's where there is truth. Where there is justice, that's where there is truth. Where there is life, that's where there is truth. And where there is truth, there is Jesus, who is the way, truth, and life. Does this mean that we're free to lie or cheat or steal or do whatever we want? No, obviously not. But it means that every action we take, every word we speak, every belief that we live out must fall back on one central question. Is this truth? It's more than ethics. It's life lived in love of God and love of neighbor. That's truth. And by the way, I mentioned Corey Ten Boom's sister, Nolly, who told the truth to honor God, trusting that God would protect the Jewish woman that she gave up. Do you want to hear the end of that story? It's just as incredible that jewish woman was taken into custody by the gestapo but escaped along with 39 others while still in amsterdam her trust that if she told the truth god would honor it nolly's trust to me that's the bigger trust than cory ten booms hiding jews she gave a jewish person into the custody of the gestapo trusting that god would honor her telling of the truth and god did honor her telling of the truth that's remarkable to me Sometimes it's more courageous to obey than to resist. Truth lived in love for the glory of God always wins. Let's pray. Jesus, you are truth. Um, You are what is true. And following you is following truth. And sometimes following you forces us to make difficult decisions. I pray that we would always be people who make decisions based on First of all, love for you, God. Love for your will. Love for the lifestyle that you've laid out for us. And also love for neighbor. The greatest law is love. And the greatest truth is love. So help us to be truthful people in that sense. Not just to tell the truth, but to live the truth in all that we do and say and and are. Um, Help us to bring glory to you by by being truthful people. And if that means, uh, holy disobedience on occasion, help us to be courageous enough as these heroes were to do that. Help us to represent your truth. Well, Jesus, And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Was there something you wanted to add? Yeah, go for it.
1: So I think there's a distinction that we should actually understand. Um, between disobedience and lying disobeying the government god has told us we're to obey the authority over us not in the same direct way that in the 10 commandments he said do not lie but all of these commandments come under who do i obey first so yes i'm going to obey the government unless it goes against god That's we're ask. yeah exactly and um I think actually there is more importance to not lying though than than quite the way we talk about it. And I can say that cuz I've actually had to walk through it, so it's not a flippant thing for me to say. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to ask him, "How do I tell truth?" Right? How do I tell this truth in a way that maybe I wouldn't have thought of? And that's where the word subversive comes in. You can be subversive without necessarily just directly lying. So when we look at Jesus and how he came and fulfilled the law, he didn't do away with it, he fulfilled it, he changed simply do not murder to a heart issue. It is not just don't do this thing. It's your heart is actually more responsible now. It's not just don't murder someone, it's don't hate them. Don't murder them within your heart. And I think with lying, uh, because I think that, that in our culture we actually face this more than we think. We just don't do anything about it. But in the culture we're living in and with the people around us who are being very uh, oppressed and wounded, we actually do face this. And so I think we should think about it. And I think we're going to be facing it more directly um, in years to come. But to take the example of the child who's drawn the horse that you have to ask them Oh, what is this? In order to compliment them on it, if my heart is that I love this child, I can honestly say I love their drawing. I don't have to lie. If someone walks up to me and says, Oh, how do I how do I look? And I can absolutely hate their shirt and I would never ever wear it. I can say, Oh, you look so beautiful. Or I can say, Wow, that looks your style, that looks just like you. And it cannot be an insult. It can be the truth because I love that person. And, and just, you know, God definitely convicted me because I think it's important the world around us is, is watching us and, and they know whether they're seeing God's character in us or not. And if we're lying, we might save someone, but are we showing God's character? I think we can ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to creatively tell the truth. And I think there's a difference between creatively telling the truth and lying. Um, for instance, when I was here among you for way longer than I've now been among you, when I wasn't in hiding, and people would ask me, Oh, where are you from? Well, I mean, technically, I'm from Three Hills. I've been living there more than 20 years. But I had been convicted by God when I went into hiding. I cannot lie. And I didn't know how that was going to be possible. But I knew, okay, if I ask him, he will show me how. Well, God has given me enough varied life experience that I could tell the truth. And if I ask the spirit, you know, and he, and then I knew as soon as the first time I was asked, oh, I can say I'm from BC. I was born in BC. But that's not the fact that people know about me and distinguish who I am. But that's not a lie. I'm just not saying, well, I was born there, but then I moved to Alberta when I was six. I'm simply saying, oh, I'm from BC, because that's what the Holy Spirit led me to say. And so I think um, when we're thinking about the question of ethics, we can't discount the Holy Spirit. that That's the main thing I would say is we need to really be asking the Holy Spirit to lead us so that when the world sees us, they do see God's character. Um, and again, legalism is absolutely not the answer, um, which is very clear to everyone from my life. I'm <laughs> very opposed to legalism. I'm also very opposed to just, you know, do whatever you want and call it the leading of the spirit because he's personally convicted you. Neither of those, those are two extremes. Neither of those is right. But because those two extremes aren't right, doesn't mean that the truth isn't right and that the spirit isn't right. And so we, we need to be seeking the Lord, I think, in all of these things. And again, like the examples of... um Corey, I actually don't see in Corey's life that that she lied. If you read more and listen to more sermons of hers, she was actually convicted not to lie, and you'll find a different story there. Um, but God gave her creative ways of speaking the truth, and so, for instance, she would sound kind of crazy sometimes. You know, they'd ask, "Oh, you know, where are the Jews? Oh, they're under the carpet." Like, What are you talking about? Oh, where are your ration cards, right, that they were hiding? Oh, they're, they're under the stairs. It's like, what, there's nothing under the stairs. What are you talking about? And she trusted God in that um, because her father actually, Caspar Tenboom, who's a very godly man and, and worth reading more about his story, um, he really felt convicted by God not to lie and encouraged his daughters as well in that. But there's a difference between the conviction of the two sisters because one believed in sort of that, like, stark truth. Like, I have to tell this child their picture's ugly because that's the truth. And the other believed in, okay, I can ask God, how do I answer this without being hurtful or without putting people in danger? And I can also answer truthfully. So I think if we're feeling like, oh, I have to lie, we actually need to spend some time with God because our hearts shouldn't be going down the slippery slope of excusing sin and and God actually does say that's a sin. But the gist it's a it's a tricky issue. The gist of it is true, I just think we can easily go to extremes um when we don't have the opportunity to talk about what it actually looks like in real life and and we are to submit ourselves to the Lord and And his law isn't over his spirit, but um, it is important still. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what I would add.
0: Thank you for those clarifications. Um, I think maybe I need to clarify what I was saying real quick. I'm not saying go out and lie because it's the right thing to do. What I'm saying is this is an example of there's a deeper ethic that we're called to. Okay, I think what we're saying is the same thing from different angles. I'm making a point based on the story in First Samuel 19 where there's lying to say, but there's a deeper truth. that's, And the deeper truth is love and life. That's our, that's our dominant ethic. And I think we're saying the same thing there, exactly. So not in defense of myself because you're absolutely right. We're not called to just lie. to I, I tried to make that clear. You can't do just whatever you want and say that it's in love. But if you can tell the truth and trust, that's even better. The scriptural and historical examples we have of of holy dissidents aren't rebelling for their own rights ever. They're rebelling and they're disobeying for the protection of others, their dignity and their their lives. And that's absolutely the principle I'm basing all of this on. If you're doing it for yourself, it's unholy. Um, Okay you're free. She's a liar, she's a deceiver, but she's a hero. It's holy deception. Jesus is the truth. He is truth incarnate in the same way that he is love incarnate.
1: We have the ability to ask him, how do I tell truth?
0: Call me when you can hold a pencil properly, you amateur.